Brothers and sisters, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, as we will be looking at Mark chapter 15 and verses 42 to 47. Mark chapter 15, verses 42 to 47. Mark chapter 15, verses 42 to 47. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out from the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now, we have just sang from that great hymn written by the reformer Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress. And he wrote in that second stanza, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord, Sabbath His name from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. Well, beloved, the, the good news is that Jesus Christ indeed has won the battle. And that victory He won, He won upon that blood-stained cross as He hung upon it and drank the full measure of God's wrath upon Him, suffering those six agonizing hours for sin. Christ, the man of God's own choosing, won the battle as He finished that great work of redemption that He covenanted with His Father from eternity past to do, in which He came forth, in which He did so perfectly. That work of atonement, that, that work that we looked at last week, where Jesus, as the high priest, offers up this sin offering to His Father. A perfect and spotless Lamb, and yet that, that Lamb was, was Himself. And He did that in order to satisfy divine justice, which had to be met for the sin that we committed against a perfectly holy God. And Christ did that out of the immensity of His divine love for you and I. And the perfection of Christ's work upon the cross was seen in those last three hours when He was suffering in darkness. At the very conclusion of it, what are we told He does? One last cry and He breathes His last breath and dies. But right before that, John records for us that Jesus says those three words, those three famous words that Christians love to say. Christ cries out, It is finished. 
This is why Christ was born. He was born to die, to to save His people from their sins. This is what Christ was proclaiming as soon as He came onto the scene in His earthly ministry after His baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. We're told in way back in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus goes around and immediately declares, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. That work of redemption that He proclaimed was now done. It was now done. So much so that Paul can say in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13-15, to 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling our record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross, There He disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. See, what we need to see, brothers and sisters, is that on the cross, Christ deals this one fatal blow to Satan and to sin so that now through the shed blood of Christ we might have the forgiveness of sin. And with that forgiveness, the righteousness that comes about through faith in Christ. And yet, this declaration that Jesus makes, it is finished. Some may say to themselves, well, that seems presumptuous at the time that Christ said this, because in fact, He had not yet died, and He had not yet been buried. And those were a part of His humiliation. So how can Christ say it is finished if He has not been buried in the tomb yet? As one writer puts it, the answer is simple. In the mind of Christ, the burial is so certain that He can speak of it as if it has already been accomplished. And it is this burial that is at the very center of our text this this morning. This burial that has massive implications for believers of past, present, and future. A burial that at the time that Jesus is hanging on the cross, from man's vantage point, seemed very unlikely to occur. As Jesus hung upon the cross, who was there to take Him down? If you remember, all of His friends have, have run and fled. Right? Who is there to, to now bury His body? Who is it that has the, a tomb to provide for Christ to be buried in? Because Jesus doesn't have a tomb of His own. And yet, brothers and sisters, what we need to see from, from God's vantage point, from the Sovereign One over, over heaven and earth, He is always moving directing, governing, guiding all things to the right ends according to His counsel. And we need to see that, and we will see that He does that even here in our text today in the burial of Christ. He is guiding, directing all things so that Christ will be buried in the most honorable of ways. With that being said then, we want to consider three points this morning as we seek to learn more about this great event in redemptive history. And so our first point this morning is going to be Joseph's courage. Joseph's courage. Now we're told in verse 42 that that evening had now come on the day of, of preparation, which was still Friday, the day before the Sabbath. Now remember, the Jews didn't count days the same way that we count days. right? Our, our day is from midnight to midnight. 
For them it is the setting of the sun to the setting of the sun. So it is still Friday, but Saturday is fast approaching. Or the Jewish Sabbath is fast approaching and, and Jesus needs to be buried. Right? It is necessary for Christ to be buried before the Sabbath day comes. For Jesus has now died on the cross and according to Jewish law, He must be buried before the day is over. This is what we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22-23. to Here we're told this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, you are to hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. So we see it is, it is necessary that Christ be buried before the Sabbath day comes. And so we have to ask them in our text as we're reading, right? then who is this man Joseph who we're told comes into possession of Christ's body? Right? Who is Joseph? Well, there's not a ton of information about Joseph, but there is some that we can gather, especially if we compile what all four Gospel accounts say about Joseph. And so we see here in verse 43 that Mark tells us Joseph is a respected member of the council. Which is to say Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. Mark also tells us that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 57 that Joseph was a rich man. He was a man of great wealth. Luke tells us even more. In Luke chapter 23, verses 50 and 51, he tells us that he was from a Jewish city of Arimathea. He was from a Jewish city of Arimathea. He likewise tells us that Joseph was a, a good and a righteous man. And a man who had not consented with the rest of the Sanhedrin in their decision to condemn Jesus to death. And then lastly, John tells us in John chapter 19 and verse 38, that Joseph, in fact, was a disciple of Christ. He was a disciple, but one in secret. He was a secret disciple of Christ for fear of the Jews. And so kind of meshing all that together, we can say that, that Joseph was a, was a Jewish man from Arimathea who was a member of the Sanhedrin, who was looking for the kingdom of God, who secret believed, secretly believed in Christ but it did so secretly out of fear of the Jews, and yet in no way, shape, or form did he consent in the death of Christ. Now why, though, is it then this Joseph, this semi-obscure kind of figure, why is it he that is the one who ends up with Jesus' body? Because normally when someone dies, if requested, they would give that body to a family member. So, so why does this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, come into possession of the body of Christ? Well, first we have to remember there are no family members at the foot of the grave as Jesus dies. John tells us this. Mary, his mother, is there. But before Jesus dies, he tells the, the disciple that he loves to take his mother back home. So he has no family member there. Secondly, he has no friends there who are able and capable of bringing his body down and finding somewhere to bury him. In fact, it seems by all appearances that, that his body is just going to remain there over the Sabbath and that it is going to be defiled. 
And yet, brothers and sisters, what we see is that the Father will not allow the body of His Son to become defiled. And the instrument that He uses to ensure that His Son's body will not be defiled and instead will be honorably buried is one Joseph of Arimathea. It is this Joseph of Arimathea that we see as we have described him. It is this Joseph who is the one who has the ability to gain the ear of Pilate as he is a member of the Sanhedrin. It is Joseph, the one who has wealth, who is a rich man, who is the one who has the capability of of burying Christ in the tomb for he is a man of wealth and has a tomb of his own. And so it is Joseph. Once afraid Joseph, the secret disciple of Jesus, who now we're told in verse 43, takes up courage and goes to Pilate and asks for Christ's body. And he goes there now, realizing that his fellow Jews, that the fellow members of the Sanhedrin, are going to know that he has done this as well. And so we have to ask, brothers and sisters, what is it that changed? What changed? What was the event that so altered the course of this man's life that he went from quietly searching for the kingdom and secretly trusting in Jesus to now boldly going before Pilate who had just crucified Jesus and asking for his body? What, What was that event that so altered him or so shaped him that now he was willing to go from silence to boldness before Pilate? It was the cross. It was the cross. It was in the cross that Joseph is confronted with his own sin as he looks upon his Savior hanging from the cross. It is in the cross that Joseph sees the shameful death Christ must endure for his own sin. And so the once silent saint understood after witnessing all of this that he could not remain silent anymore. This is the influence that the cross had on Joseph's life. It turned a a, a man who was once a coward into a man who was filled with courage. It turned a man who was once more worried about keeping his wealth. A man who was once more concerned with his position in society, a man who is more concerned with keeping or holding on to friendships and confessing Christ, to a man who was willing to forsake all for Christ crucified. That is the power of the cross, brothers and sisters. This is the power of the cross that is proclaimed to you here week in and week out as you hear the Gospel proclaimed. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Right there. That the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And so the question is, have you experienced the power of the cross? You hear about what the King of glory suffered. You hear about His humiliation as He hung naked upon the cross. You've heard about His beatings, His scourging, the mocking, the nails. You've heard about His his feeling of forsakenness by the Father. How He bows His head and dies. And He did all of that for you. So that your sins may be forgiven. And so I ask, how can that not awaken your heart and your soul 
If you say that you are a believer, to in response, give everything and all that you have to God in light of what He's done for you in Christ. How does it not aliven your soul to give all to Christ? This is most assuredly what what overwhelmed Joseph of Arimathea at this time. He is overwhelmed with with this sense now that I must do all and give all for Christ. This is why he, he now is stirred up to so much faith that he's willing to go before Pilate and ask for the body of Christ, no longer caring what might happen to him, so long as he never misses another opportunity to confess Christ. You see, there was all those chances Joseph had in the past to confess Christ, and he whiffed on them all, right? Joseph is saying in this moment, I'm not going to whiff anymore. When the opportunity arises, I am going to confess Christ no matter what it means. And as I thought about that, I couldn't help but think back to the English Reformation and Thomas Cranmer, who was an Archbishop of Canterbury during the 16th century. And if any of you are familiar with the English Reformation, then you are familiar with who Thomas Cranmer is because he's a, he's a major figure during that time period. And he is a Protestant. Uh, he was one who supported the reign of uh, Lady, uh, Lady uh, Jane Grey, uh, which only lasted for nine days until Queen Mary takes over. That's Bloody Mary, Queen Mary I. And when Queen Mary takes over, what she does is she has... Uh, Thomas Cranmer arrested for for heresy and for treason because she wants to return England to Catholicism. She wants to turn it away from Protestantism and return it to Catholicism. And so what they do is they're going to execute Thomas Cranmer. Uh, And if he doesn't want to get executed, what he has to do is he has to recant all that he has said. And so Thomas Cranmer, in, in a moment of weakness, fearing for his own life, instead of confessing Christ, he signs that letter of recantation. Now he does that privately, so that's not enough for for Queen Mary. And instead what they want him to do is they want him to now stand up in the pulpit and to declare that he has recanted his faith and now has returned to Catholicism. Declare that the Pope is the head of the church. And as Thomas Cranmer stands up to the surprise of Queen Mary, he takes back all that he recanted. And in doing so, he knows, now I'm going to my death. I'm going to be burned. And so, he says as he's up there, the first thing I'm going to do as I go, as I go in that fire is I'm going to punish my right hand. I'm going to punish my right hand for signing that recantation. And my right hand is the first thing that goes into the fire. And by all accounts, that's exactly what happened. His, his right hand was the first thing that went into that fire. But brothers and sisters, do you not see how a man can go from such cowardice to such strength and courage? That's not natural to us. right? That is, that is courage that is, that is gained from above. That is courage here that Joseph of Arimathea shows as he goes to Pilate and he asks Pilate for the body of Christ knowing that the Jews deem him a blasphemer and that Rome deems him a treacherous man. And yet he does that all. Why does he do it? Because now he is ready to confess Christ no matter what it costs him. No more recanting for Joseph. Only confessing Christ. 
So you have to understand, keeping your faith buried or bottled up inside is not something a true believer in Christ could ever do. Right? Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess Christ with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You must confess. There, there must be an open proclamation of what you believe. Right? There will be no secret Christians living on earth who are going to reign with Christ in heaven. If you are ashamed to identify as being a Christian here on earth, know for certain Christ is going to be ashamed and will not identify you as His in heaven. And so I want to ask all of you here today, do you openly and unabashedly confess Christ? Do you openly and unabashedly confess Christ? Do you confess Him, confess him to be your only Savior and Redeemer? Do you confess Him to be the only true sacrifice for sin? Do you confess that He is the only way of salvation? Do you confess that He is the way, the truth, and the life? Or... Are you like Joseph was in the past? Do you live in fear and so you, you hold your faith privately inside because you're afraid of what co-workers might say? Are you afraid of what your friends might say? Are you afraid of what your work might do? Right? Perhaps you're, you're a young person or you just get a new job and you want to climb the ladder to the top but you, you know if they know you're a Christian... It's never going to happen. And so, do you out of fear then hold your faith privately within your heart and are unwilling to openly confess Christ? Because you're afraid also maybe that you'll be laughed at or that your co-workers or friends or family members are going to talk about you behind your back. Well, if that is you, brothers and sisters, I call upon you. Even more than that, Christ your Lord calls upon you. Come out from that. Come out from that. Come out from that fear. Come out from that cowardice. Come out from that sinful way of thinking. Come out from that fear of shame and embarrassment and look to the cross. See the shame and embarrassment that Christ suffered for you and ask yourself, am I now unwilling to suffer shame and embarrassment for Christ? Jesus says, if you want to come after Me, you must take up your cross. You must deny yourself. And you must follow Me. And that means following Him wherever that takes you. Whether that means loss of job. Whether that means loss of friends. Whether that means imprisonment, embarrassment, shame. Whether that means being ostracized. Or even if that means death. And no matter what it means, brothers and sisters, we ought to say, then so be it. That ought to be the response of the Christian. right? In a world that is turning more and more away from identifying with Christ, we need to stand firm in the faith together. But we can only consistently do that if we are constantly looking to the cross and if we are daily begging the Lord for His strength and for His power. And we can know Right, that He, just like He did with Joseph, will grant us the power to overcome. He will give us that courage to overcome our enemy. And God is faithful. Right? God is faithful, my friends. And a, a great demonstration of that faithfulness is seen in our text today. As He does not allow His Son to be defiled upon the cross. 
but rather he works out his plan so perfectly in such a way that Joseph is there to ask for the body of Christ and to be able to bury Christ in an honorable way. Now this leads us then to our second point this morning, which is Pilate's surprise. Pilate's surprise. Please, if you would, look with me at verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that he had cut out from the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. If you remember from last week, we said that normally it takes two to three days for someone to die upon the cross. Right? Two or three days. For Christ, it took six hours. Right? And so Pilate is surprised to hear Jesus is already dead. He was hung on the cross at 9 a.m. and by 3 p.m. he had already died. In fact, it was only when the centurion testified to the truthfulness of what Joseph said, that does Pilate finally grant the release of Christ's body to Joseph? Because Pilate's in disbelief. But thankfully, the centurion was there to witness the piercing of Christ's side that John tells us in his Gospel. In John chapter 19, verse 34, we're told that one of the soldiers takes a, a spear and he pierces the side of Christ through it so that water and blood immediately flow out. And that water and blood immediately flow out because they pierce the pericardial sac that surrounds the heart, that it builds up with fluid. And they did this. They pierced him to make sure that he was dead. And they pierced him with a spear in lieu of breaking his legs. To break someone's legs would put them in shock and cause them to, to, to die early if they wanted to get them down from the cross. But this centurion, as well as all the Roman guards who were there, it was obvious to them Jesus already died. So they didn't break his legs and they just stabbed him with the spear. But what we need to see is what came as a surprise to Pilate shouldn't be a surprise to us. right? This is why Christ came and died and hung on the cross. This was ultimately the, the penalty for sin that he had to bear. And yet the whole time, God is working out his plan, which is why Jesus dies so quick. Right? This is the part of the plan of God. This is why he only lasts six hours up on the cross and dies It is so that His legs would not be broken. So that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Psalm 34, verse 20. He keeps all His bones. Not one of them is broken. And so, brothers and sisters, I want us to see there can be no mistake. Not only is the death of Christ attested to us by believers, but also by unbelievers as well. It is these pagan Roman soldiers who put Him to death who likewise attest to the truthfulness of the death of Christ. And it is as the second Adam that Christ receives what the the first Adam ought to have received, what the first Adam deserved, and that was death. If you remember, the Lord places Adam in the garden. He says, eat of all of the, the trees in this garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, do not eat. Why? In the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And yet Adam didn't die immediately, did he? That was God's mercy to him. But now Christ has come as a substitute and took upon that penalty that was due Adam for the violation of that law. And so nothing short of this death, nothing short of his death was enough. 
And so in the piercing of Christ's side, and in the testimony of this centurion, what we need to see is that Christ really and truly dies on the cross. There is not an appearance of death going on here. It is not that Jesus almost died but didn't. It is not that Jesus faked His death upon the cross, but there is a a true death according to the human nature of Christ. And yet, Pilate's response to his death, Pilate's response to this truth, that surprise is not unlike the response of the world to many of the Christian truths today, is it? Right? The world is surprised to hear a lot about what Christians confess and believe. Right? They're surprised to hear that the Father would even send His Son into the world to die for sinners when the Son did nothing wrong Himself. Right? To many in this world, they don't even want to believe in a God like that. They see that God as a monster who would do something like that to His Son. Right? So much of the world, sadly, even professing Christians, right? don't, don't believe that Jesus died in the, for, for sinners and for sin. Right? So many people today of this world and even professing Christians see Jesus simply as a, as a moral teacher. Right? They like Jesus who, who preached on the Sermon on the Mount. Or they like the Jesus who sat and ate with outcasts. But brothers and sisters, the reality is, is that that Jesus who taught on the Sermon on the Mount that the sinners love to quote, right? Blessed are the, are the poor, or blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Or that the Jesus who, who dined with sinners and tax collectors that, that people like to bring up, and so they should. That Jesus is not enough. Right? That Jesus is not enough if they have not placed their faith and hope in the Jesus who hung on the cross for their sins in their stead. Right? That is the Jesus that we need. Not a moral Jesus. Not a Jesus who just identifies with disenfranchised people. Or not, a, or not a Jesus who is just merely a man who thought he was the Messiah and died upon the cross. And that may be a surprise to some, but, but this is the truth of God's Word. What also surprises some is that not only the Father sent His Son into the world to die, but listen to this, that it pleased the Father to send His Son into the world to die. The world finds that extremely surprising and shocking, do they not? But Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so we have to ask, you know, why does this please God? Is, is there something wrong with him? No, it pleases the Father because it is the death of the Son that is the only death that can satisfy divine justice. Right? The Father is pleased with the death of the Son because it is only through the death of the Son that sinners can have reconciliation to an Almighty God. And yet, brothers and sisters, we need to see the love of the Father for His Son and that He did not allow Him to suffer one second more than what was necessary. He drank of the cup. He drank it in full. And then He died. No more suffering after that. And you can just imagine how irritated some of the the Jews must have been, especially the members of the Sanhedrin. For they wanted Christ to be crucified because they wanted Him to suffer day after day after day. And so they are surprised, just as Pilate is surprised that Jesus died so early. But He did so, so as to accomplish the very purposes of God. And this leads us then to our third and final point this morning, which is Jesus placed in the grave. Jesus placed in the grave. Look with me, please, starting in 
Verse 46 into the end. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out from the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw him laid there. Here we see Joseph takes great pains to make sure that Christ has an honorable burial. He he brings Christ down and he, he wraps him in linen. And knowing that Joseph is a wealthy man, Joseph isn't doing this by himself. He has servants or helpers who are helping him do this. Likewise, we're actually told in John's Gospel that one Nicodemus is there. He brought spices to place on the body as they are wrapping Christ's body in this linen. But now as this is being done and as they finish this, remember Sabbath is quickly approaching and they need to get him in a grave quickly. And so we're told they put him in a grave uh, that had been cut out of a rock. They couldn't carry him far. And so this would have been a tomb cut out from uh, a solid rock of a cliffside, a place not where regular people lay, but a place where only the wealthy lay. And this is where they placed Jesus' body. And it's Matthew in his Gospel that tells us that this is actually the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It is John in his Gospel who tells us that this is a brand new tomb, one that no one had laid in. And it is these tombs that you can still find outside of the city of Jerusalem, where they have these three walls and one large rock that rolls across the front of it so as to keep the creatures out as we read about in our text today. And it's this tomb that that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw as they stood watching, which is why they know where to come back on that Sunday. But before we get to that part of it, we need to, to see and understand that just as the death of Christ was so essential for us, so too is the burial of Christ. This is why all four Gospel accounts record the burial of Christ. It was essential. It was necessary that Christ be buried. And why? Well, three quick reasons. It was necessary that Christ be buried because it further solidified the fact that Christ truly died. Right? If they just took Him from the, grave, for, from the cross and took Him to their house, right, someone could say, well, this, He didn't truly die. And so putting Him directly into the grave solidifies the fact Jesus truly died. Secondly, if we do not have the burial of Christ, then we have unfulfilled prophecy. Right? In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, we read this, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Also, brothers and sisters, without the burial of Christ, we would be without a lot of comfort and hope as saints. Right? The grave certainly ought to sadden us. The grave is a reminder of, of, our, of sin and the punishment for sin. It is a reminder of the curse. But we who believe also ought to be comforted knowing that we, when we die and we are laid into that grave, we are laid into a grave just like Christ our Savior was laid into a grave. Right? We also ought to take comfort that when we are laid into that grave, we are experiencing something that Christ our Savior likewise has experienced before. But think about how much worse then is the grave for the ungodly. How much worse is the grave for the unbeliever? The grave is a disgrace for them. As one author puts it, it is a hiding place of, of their shame. Today, people try to dress up the grave, don't they? They try to make it pretty and appealing. 
When they put you in the ground, they put flowers all around it in order to make it appealing to the eyes. But the truth remains the same, that there is nothing living inside of the grave. All that remains is death and corruption inside of the grave. But herein lies the good news for the Christian. That neither death nor the grave are a punishment for the believer. Understand that. The grave nor death are punishment for the believer. Remember this. Christ Jesus on the cross bore the curse. He took our punishment on Himself so that we no longer have to suffer the punishment for that sin. Christ did it. And so those things aren't our punishment. But rather, brothers and sisters, it is simply a place where our bodies remain and stay just for a while until Christ returns. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because he knows our bodies have not been resigned to the grave. The grave as it was for Christ is for us a slumber, a short slumber. And yet, I want us to see, brothers and sisters, all that I've, I've, I've said under this third point. The death and burial of Christ have guaranteed for you and I. But yet, we need to see that, that death and burial is not all that is it. Right? The grave isn't the end. The, the grave isn't the end all, nor the be all. The grave is not the last act Christ commits here on earth. This is why one writer can can write that the cemetery or the graveyard where Christians lay are nothing but resurrection fields. We who die in Christ rest in the grave under the watchful eye and protection of our Lord. And just as we have been united with Christ in His death and we have been united with Christ in His burial, we will be made like Christ as well in the bodily resurrection of the saints where body and soul are reunited again, never to be separated. And so as we draw to a close, I ask you here today, have you, like Joseph, been quickened to newness of life? Because if you have not, then the death of Christ nor His burial are of any value to you. Right? Have you been given a spirit, not, not of fear, but of courage, believing that what God said is true for you through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah in verse, or chapter 41, verse 10, where he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If so, brothers and sisters, if that is true of you, then let us not fear what man can do to our body. Don't fear what man can do to those who love the Lord. Also, brothers and sisters, let us then no longer fear the grave. But rather, we who believe ought to welcome the grave. We ought to see it as a, as a time in which our bodies simply rest in Christ until He returns to gather them to life everlasting in paradise. So let us pray. Let us pray this day that, that God would prepare us for the grave just as Christ was prepared for the grave so that we would see the grave as a great rest so that we might see the grave as a great gain for the believer. Seeing that it moves us one step further to that great inheritance that Christ our Savior secured for us in His great sacrifice on the cross. Please bow your heads with me.
Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful not only for the death of Christ, but for the burial. We are so thankful, Father, though, that You did not resign His body to the grave, but that You raised Him up. And likewise, Father, in doing so, we know that our bodies will not be resigned to the grave, but that when Christ returns and the trumpet shouts and the angels come to gather the elect from the four winds, that our bodies will be raised, reunited to our spirits, and we will be given those glorified bodies so that we might dwell in eternal felicity with You forever. Lord, cause us to to think about those things today and live in light of that great truth and reality. Lord, we ask all these things in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.